about how God seeks us and finds us, and we see a picture of that in today's passage of Scripture found in the Gospel of John, uh, the first chapter, verses 43 through 51. I hope you'll open your bulletin insert to that passage of Scripture, and we'll use this as a unison reading together. Again, John chapter 1, beginning to read at verse 43 and reading through the end of the chapter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I was reading an article a couple of weeks ago where the writer was mentioning a book that is causing a little bit of buzz in Christian circles. And the book is entitled The Great Emergence. And the author attempts to make the point in that book that the Christian church is going through a period of change that is so strong that when it comes out of this turbulent time in which we're living... It will be an emergence of sorts where the church as we know it will be radically transformed. In other words, the author is trying to say that this is a a period of change in the church in the past few decades and what we're going through now that is so cataclysmic. It's similar to the last huge period of change the church underwent, what you and I refer to as the Reformation in the 16th century. Now, I don't want you to hear me as an alarmist. I'm certainly not a religious historian, nor am I a sociologist of religion, and I have not studied and read enough to know whether this is an accurate thesis or not. And yet you live in the same world I try to navigate every day, and we would truly be the proverbial ostrich with his head in the sand not to admit that change has been rampant in the Christian church in the past few decades. 
For example, we've seen tremendous changes in technology just like you've seen in your own lives at home. You know, when I was completing seminary almost 30 years ago, there weren't any computers in churches. There weren't any church websites. There weren't any phone trees or that kind of technology for getting in touch with people. There was no email, no cell phones, no CDs, no DVDs. And during that same period of time, the church has become seemingly irrelevant in many places in Europe, has radically declined in North America, and at the same time has been booming in South America, in Africa, and in some places in the East. And when I say the church has declined in North America, I'm referring primarily to what we typically call the mainline churches, the Episcopalians, the Presbyterian Church USA, the United Methodists, and even Southern Baptists are now beginning to report losses in membership. And we've seen some of that right here at First ARP. Attendance in this church is not what it used to be even though our membership numbers have remained somewhat stable. Now, is that because we don't offer a meaningful worship service? Is it because you have a preacher who preaches dull and boring sermons? Well, that's one answer. That's one way to go. I prefer another answer that I see in another book entitled American Grace where the authors describe the reason why attendance at church and worship has been declining all over America. It's a generational phenomena. They make the point that as baby boomers grew into adulthood in huge numbers, their much more religiously observant grandparents were departing this life. In other words, they were dying off. And I quote, In round numbers, about 25% of the arriving boomers were regular churchgoers, whereas 45% of those departing had been that observant. Over the long run, that process of generational succession put very slow but steady downward pressure on national rates of church attendance. I submit to you that we as a congregation are a living example of that description. I mean, think about it. Those in their 90s and 80s and 70s who've been dying off in this congregation were in the pews practically every Sunday unless their health kept them from being here. And those of us in my generation... We're very mobile. And it's not only that we're at the beaches or in the mountains lots of Sundays, it's also that Grandma lives two states away and we have to go see her and, and then grandkids live two states away and we have to go see them. And what you see today is what you get from those kinds of statistics So, what are we to do? 
Well, even though many things have changed in the church, and even though technology and trends and attitudes will continue to change, other things remain the same. Even if some great emergence is taking place in the history of the Christian church. And we see some of those things that remain the same in this passage of Scripture this morning. And the first thing to notice is that Jesus is looking for disciples. He's searching for those who will follow Him. That was true 2,000 years ago, and it's still true today. You see, the God we worship is a God who initiates. He's a God who, who reaches out, who's willing to make the first move and take the first step. He so loved this world, we read in Scripture, that He gave His only Son. We see this behavior in the first verse of our passage this morning. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, He said to him, Follow me. You know, Jesus is doing all of the action there. He's finding this person, Philip, and he's carrying on a conversation with him. And, and that reminds us about the Gospels and how when we read through the Gospels, we see all of these times in which Jesus initiates conversations with people who need their lives to be changed. We don't have time to talk about all of them, but I'll just mention a few. What about the woman at the well? This woman that he speaks to in public, even though Jewish men didn't do that, he initiates the conversation. He knows her life needs to change. Think about Zacchaeus. He's just up in a tree trying to, to, to watch Jesus as he walks by. And what does Jesus do? He stops and he reaches out to him. We see it with the lame man at the pool of Bethesda that we read about in John 5. We see that in an amazing way with Saul who's persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. He's on his way to Damascus and Jesus reaches out to him from the sky. The Greek there says he arrests him from the sky. And we see the same thing with Philip in our text today. Not as dramatic... You know, John doesn't give us very many words here. He simply says, Jesus, finding Philip, said to him, follow me. Now the point is, God still does the same thing with you and me and people around us in our world today. God is unchanging. He still reaches out to those in need and those who are lost in this world and without hope, save in His love and mercy. He still wants a relationship with those He has created. As Hebrews 1 puts it, in many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He's spoken to us by Son. God is always reaching out to this world. Or this same chapter in John earlier in the prologue tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth and we have seen His glory. He literally came into our midst. That shows you how special we are to God the Father. 
but do we really recognize His glory? In these busy lives of ours, do we actually see God at work around us? Do we hear Him speak? Do we see Him act on our behalf and for us? Or are we too busy to notice when something extra special is in our midst? Maybe you heard about the experiment that the Washington Post conducted about four years ago. I may have mentioned this before. I just find it fascinating. They placed a world-renowned musician in a Washington, D.C. metro station one morning during rush hour and had him play some of the most beautiful music he could play because they wanted to see if anyone would stop and notice. The musician was Joshua Bell. And he wasn't just playing any old violin. He was playing his own Stradivarius, reportedly worth between three and four million dollars. He played some of the world's most beautiful and moving music, selection after selection, and hardly anyone noticed. He pretended to be a street musician, you know, with his violin case open and some change and some crumpled bills thrown in there to see if people would treat him that way, to see if people would stop and listen, to see if people would notice beauty right there in their midst. He played for 43 minutes and made $37 and some change out of those who had no idea who he was. Just as an aside, he said, well, you know, if the concert bit kind of plays out, I can at least make a living on $40 an hour, that's good to know. You can hear his music online. You can watch the video and see how few people pay any attention whatsoever. It was the Welsh poet W.H. Davies who wrote the following way back in 1911 in a poem entitled Leisure. He wrote, What if this life, what is this life if full of care... We have no time to stand and stare. Those words seem to be a wonderful commentary on Moses and his decision in Exodus 3. You know, that's where we read these words. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from within the bush. And he looked and the bush was burning and yet it did not burn up. And Moses said, I'll go over and look at this strange sight and see why this bush has not burned up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush. God very often calls to his people. He calls to you and me. It's the psalmist in Psalm 46 that tells us we are to be still and know what? That God is God. That's where God tells us through His psalmist, be still and know that I am God. Are we so busy, so caught up in our own lives that we have no time to stand and stare, no time to be still, no time to see or hear what God might have in mind for our lives, how He can change us and transform us into servants of His who can go out and make a difference in the world around us. Regardless of how much change we have to face in this life, 
the fact that God loves us and wants a relationship with us, that fact will never change. Just as Jesus found Philip, God can find you and me. He finds people every single day. And that's good news. And then notice what Philip does. He finds Nathanael. We see it there in verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This too is one of those things that never changes about our lives in the church. Our call to find others and tell them about Jesus Christ. To some extent, it goes back to the so-called Great Commission that Jesus gives to all the church there at the end of Matthew 28. Those words should be familiar to you and me. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the close of the age. Go and make Disciples, go and find people and tell them the good news of the gospel. This is what Jesus did during His time on earth. Sure, He healed people. Sure, He had some arguments with scribes and Pharisees, but He was out there day in and day out preaching the good news. One of the very first miracles He ever performed was with Peter's mother-in-law. She was sick. She had a fever. And Jesus healed her. And the word got out right there in their little community. And, and people were bringing all kinds of sick people to him. And he healed everyone that was brought, if my memory serves me correctly. And then the very next day, the disciples couldn't find him. They were like, everybody's looking for you. You know, what are you doing? Well, Jesus, of course, had been out praying. And he said, we've got to move on. Because I was sent to preach the good news of the gospel. We hear it right there that day in his home church when he reads from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He calls us to do the same. This is why Peter says to Cornelius in Acts 10 that Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one ordained by God to judge the living and the dead. To Him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. Now we can't be sure from this passage before us. But I think that Philip knew Nathaniel. I think Nathaniel was an acquaintance of his. You see, Philip had this good news. He had met a man, Jesus, who was changing his life and he wanted Nathaniel to see and to hear this as well. So when Nathaniel issues his skeptical words here, Philip doesn't argue. He simply continues to extend 
the invitation as if to say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, come and see. I mean, you might be surprised. Now think a moment. What kind of friends do you have? How many of them have no church home, no relationship with the Lord, no hope, and therefore no eternal life? Go find them and tell them what Jesus has done for you. Philip finds Nathaniel. You know, regardless of how much the church changes all around us, Christians will still seek the lost and will still make disciples for the glory of God. And that's good news. And what does Nathaniel do? Even in the midst of his skepticism... He follows along. He goes to see this Jesus of Nazareth. He responds to the invitation and his life is changed. And that's the third point we see in this passage that there will always be those who, like Nathaniel, are willing to respond to the truth of the gospel of God's love. It makes no difference how our world changes or how much the church changes. People still have the same needs that they've always had. The need for repentance, the need for salvation, the need for renewal and transformation. The kind of forgiveness of sins we can only find in Christ. And regardless of how many say no to our invitations to come and see Jesus there will be others who will say yes because of the power and the work of God's Holy Spirit because He's gone before us and prepared the soul adequately and more than that. You know, there are a lot of people in our world today, people right here in Rock Hill, who are skeptical just like Nathaniel. They think Jesus Christ is nothing more than a man who lived on this earth just like you and me. They don't believe that there's a living and almighty God. They think they have one shot at life, the here and now, and when this is over, that's it. That's all there is to it. And what we need to notice in this passage is how Jesus responds to this kind of skepticism. It appears that Jesus almost goes out of his way to make Nathaniel feel welcome. Is that our mode of operation with the skeptics in our lives? Those in our neighborhoods, those in our workplaces, those in our classrooms. You know, Jesus teaches or in another place in the Bible that the kingdom of God is like a great net that caught all kinds of fish. In other words, there are all kinds of people in the church, in God's kingdom. And indeed, the church contains even you and me, which quite frankly is why it's not perfect. You know, the church has always had issues. It continues to have issues today. That's something else that hasn't changed. And a lot of people say that the church is outdated or it's irrelevant or it has no vision or purpose for life as we know it in today's modern world. 
That may be their opinion, but they don't know what they're saying because of what Jesus has already taught us in Matthew 16 when He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is here to stay. Because of that promise from Jesus Christ and because He's the same yesterday, today, and forever and because His Word endures forever. And the church is here to stay because it points others to this one, Jesus Christ, who is the way and the truth and the life. You know, we didn't read the first part of this story But John the Baptist is the one who started these early disciples coming to Jesus. He's the one who not only points others to Christ, but also told his disciples that I must decrease and Jesus must increase. Earlier in our chapter we can read that one day John was standing with two of his own disciples and as they were standing there and I assume having some kind of conversation, John sees Jesus walk by and he says to his own disciples, he says, look, there goes the Lamb of God and we're told that those two disciples followed Jesus. One of those was Andrew and what did Andrew do? He went out and found his brother Peter and took him to Jesus. And then the very next day, Jesus finds Philip. And what does he do? He finds Nathanael, the one who says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? There are many people around us today who have exactly the same question. They ride by these churches and they say, Can anything good come out of the church? Like Philip, the best thing we can do is say, Come and see as we point them to Jesus Christ. Many will say, No thanks. But there will be others like Nathaniel who even in the midst of their skepticism will come They'll listen to your invitation. And if nothing else, they'll come because of who you are. And as they come to Jesus, their lives too will be changed just like yours. And that's good news, isn't it? Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank